Last June, I was kind of tickled to read in the Dallas Morning News something that happened in Fort Worth. A lady named Lola Winder heard a voice in her house about 1.30 a.m. And the voice was shouting, Help! Get me out of here! Call the police! Interspersed with some cursing. She looked all through the house and couldn't find anybody in any of the rooms. And uh, so she called the police, like this voice told her. Police got there. They looked all around, couldn't find anything. Finally, they picked up the chimney. And halfway down this chimney was this young man stuck up in there going, Help! Call the police! 1.30 in the morning. She said that by the time they got him out, she counted. There were two ambulances, three fire trucks, and 12 police cars all gathered around her home. And when they finally hoisted this guy out named Ben Jordan, asked him why in the world did he crawl down this chimney, he said that he did it to get to uh, her granddaughter, who was there in the house, because he wanted to talk to her. If you're looking for a place that defines logic, being in love is not the place to look. Uh, can you imagine? I mean, what would possess someone to get on top of a roof, uninvited, and to go down a chimney at 1.30 in the morning? I couldn't imagine that. I'd at least go through the window or something. But, uh, and yet, true love is not just to be an illogical emotion. It is, but then it, it also, there's to be more beyond that. More beyond the, the crazy feeling, there is to be an extreme logic to it and a, a, a willful decision made. In fact, in your life, there are three major decisions that you're going to be faced to make at some point. Uh, they all regard, or, or they all start with M, you might say, to help you remember it. One is your master, one is your mission, and one is your mate. You have to decide early on who is going to be your master. If it's either going to be you or it's going to be God. That's really your only options. And if you've lived long enough to figure it out, and if you haven't yet, you will, that you can't be your, your own master. Not for long, at least have any kind of success. You'll crash and burn. God loves us enough, though, to let us learn the hard way what we refuse to learn by instruction. That is that the Scripture tells us that we are all sinners that the Lord Jesus died on the cross to pay for that sin, and that by faith in Him, that sin is forgiven. He is our Master, because He has bought and paid for us with His life. And then what is your mission? Who do you live for? Do you live for yourself, or do you live for the one who died for you? You know, there's many a Christian that doesn't walk the life of a Christian. Who, uh, after you've decided who's your master, what's your mission going to be? Going to be living for yourself, be just like the world, be conformed to the world? Or is your mind going to be transformed? Are you going to begin living for the Lord Jesus every single day? And once you have decided who your master and what your mission is, then unless the Lord has given you the gift of being single, and if He has, I think that's fantastic. But unless He has... The third decision, and it ought to be third, after these other two are made, is who is your mate? 
and you want to pick a mate that has the same master and the same mission as you. Because if you don't, you're going to end up continually button heads and heading off in different directions. As David mentioned so far in our series as we've studied the Song of Solomon, we have seen two people with the same master and the same mission, and now they have come to the realization that they are to be mates. What has attracted them to one another is their character. Not the external that fades away, not the charm that's deceptive, uh, deceiving, but it's character. And where that character is insecure, they've affirmed one another. Back and forth, we've seen that. And then last week, we saw what happens when that natural attraction kicks in and the, the, the sex drive begins to raise its head and say, Hey, here I am. What do you do with that? Where we're told that is a natural, that is a fine thing to have, that is a fine thing to express, to feel, but it is not something that is proper outside of marriage. And today we're going to find out why. Why is it that that sex drive is to wait till after marriage? Because there are some things prior to that, prior to the sexual relationship, more important than the sexual relationship that are the foundation for your marriage that need to be dealt with. Today the text talks to those, we say, for whom the bell tolls, as our, we call the message today, or those who are courting. And incidentally, courting doesn't stop after you get married, okay? So don't think that if you're married, you can go ahead and leave now and beat the Baptist to Wyatt's. This is for everybody who is married or one day, by God's grace, who will be. So let's look together in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. The lady does all the talking today, and Solomon through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records both her thoughts and her words into some very good practical advice for those who are courting. Let's start here together in verse 8. She says, Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, leaping, uh, sorry, I'm excited, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. Can you see how excited she is about Solomon coming? Look at the, those ING words, those gerunds that she keeps uh, describing of how he comes to her. He is coming by coming. He is climbing. He is leaping. He is standing. He is looking. He is peering. He's parked out front. She's all excited about the fact and anticipating he's coming and finally he's here. And she's all excited. And look, he's not half excited himself. Leaping on the hills, this shameless man. Uh, it's like that song the, the band did. You know, you really got me. You can just see. It's almost like a David Lee Roth jumping. So excited in the air. Minus the pants. Minus, I should say, his pants. Otherwise, it'd be worse. <laughs> but he's excited. He's excited about coming to her and he's running and you kind of get the picture of the, the Burt Lancaster from here to eternity. Is that the movie where they're, they're on the beach, you know, they run and they, they fall and they collapse in the foam in slow motion. You know, it's this idea of running to one another with this, this unbridled and joyous passion. The excitement that is natural and very healthy and is fun to see for a change. The refreshness, the refreshingness of it. 
But unlike our Fort Worth Romeo, or would-be Romeo, shimmering uh, down the chimney, Solomon was welcomed. Solomon was expected and anticipated. Look at verse 10. She says, My beloved responded and said to me, now Solomon, she's quoting him, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. He's describing here springtime, and all these different metaphors and whatnot are representing not only the season that they're in, but as we're going to see in a couple of verses following, he is using the season to illustrate where they are in their relationship. It is spring for them. And as we're going to see, in some sense, they're ready for marriage. The spring represents their maturity in their relationship and their readiness for marriage. So he comes and he basically asks her out. He says, come along. He says that twice. He starts and finishes. Arise, my darling. Come along. What does he want to do on this date? <clears throat> Look at verse 14. He says, O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Literally, it's appearance. Nothing sexual there. Just let me look at you. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your form, your appearance, is lovely. He wants to be alone with her, as every courting couple should do and wants to do. But also, realize this. Solomon was the richest king around. Okay? He could have bought anything for this young woman. And yet, notice what he wants to focus on, on the date. What does he want to do? He doesn't say, I'm going to take you to the state fair. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you to a movie. I'm going to take you to an expensive restaurant. I'm going to buy you all kinds of gifts. He says, I want to look at you, and I want to talk to you. He focuses on the things that so often we don't focus on, on a date. It is so easy sometimes to call quality time going to a movie. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to a movie per se or watching a, a movie as long as it's decent. But to let the whole of your time together always have to be spending money, I think, is a poor way to build a relationship. Because if you have to be entertained in order to enjoy one another's company, then you're going to wake up one day and figure out that your relationship is about that deep. It is shallow. And if money ever leaves your life, and it can, you can see that your relationship was built on wood, hay, and stubble that blows away when it is put to the test. The Beatles sang a song, Can't Buy Me Love. And that is exactly true. These events of doing all the stuff, spending money and whatnot as a means of a date can be an, an easy way, not just for courting, but also in marriage, to avoid the real issue of conversation. And so here's a good principle that we can derive from the text. That courtship should focus on admiration and conversation. He says he wants to look at her. And he wants to listen to her. Now, we men don't have a problem with the continuing desire of wanting to look. Okay? No problem. 
The problem we have after marriage is wanting to listen. Why is it so easy before marriage to have to be such a great conversationalist and yet after marriage uh, you're, you're lucky to get a grunt? How's your day? All right. Pretty good. Why is that? <clears throat> well, some natural reasons, I think, because one, there's a conquest there on the part of the man. Uh, and so there's a reason to be so intimate and conversing. But I think for both of them anyway, not just the man, there is the issue of a genuine ignorance, an innocent ignorance, a lack of knowledge about the other person. You want to get to know them better. The only problem is people continue to change. Uh, your spouse is not going to be the same person when they marry as when, when you marry as 10 years down the road. Not going to be the same person after you have kids. It's amazing how things change after you have kids. And the personality of the one that you thought was an earth angel ends up being a little more to reality. And it's not that they were faking it up front. It's that people change. Circumstances change. Okay? And so you've got to constantly be doing the admiration and conversation. It's not just a courting event. But what we'll often do is divert our attention from the real issues and entertain ourselves with money or spending money and calling that a relationship. And it isn't. Women fall in love with men who give them conversation and admiration and they stay in love with men who give them conversation and admiration. That's what it should be focused on. And not just that but also, look at verse 15, something else. She says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards, while our vineyards are in blossom. Now remember, back in chapter 1, she described herself and her upbringing as one who was a caretaker of a vineyard. Remember, her brothers made her work in the vineyard, that's why she had such dark skin that she was insecure about. And so she knows about what she's talking about here. That when these little foxes would get into the vineyards, they would burrow holes and they would chew on the vines and they would basically ruin your vineyard. They would cause the fruit not to bear. And yet in that same passage, she also called herself a vineyard. The, the literal vineyard was a picture of her body that had been burned by the sun. And so I take it here while she says, our vineyards are in blossom again with what he did in describing the spring, talking about where they are in their relationship. And she is saying, catch those things that are ruining our vineyards. Catch those things and correct those things, the implication is as well, that are ruining our relationship. And it's neat that she uses a figure here of foxes rather than just coming right out and saying, you know, we got problems. She uses a figure that he can relate to. In some sense, she appeals to his manliness, you know, to go out and catch a critter. Catch the fox, you know. I'm the bug killer in my house. When there's a bug, I'm the man. You just come and find me. And so she appeals to his manliness here to take the leadership in dealing with issues in their relationship that can ruin their relationship. She says to catch the foxes. Some time ago, there were thousands of 
couples in Puerto Rico who rushed madly everywhere all of a sudden to get married. I kid you not, this really happened. And justice of the peace, uh, the legal officials and the priests down there were wondering why in the world all these couples all of a sudden wanting to get married. It turns out they had all listened to a radio program. And this radio program uh, said that after June, it would be illegal to, and you'll have to forgive me with my Spanish, but he said it would be illegal to casar, which refers to marriage, but also refers to hunting. Well, the announcer meant hunting. That after June, it would be illegal to hunt. Well, and the word sounds so similar in Spanish that they heard it, and the way that the guy said it, all these couples thought after June, we won't be able to get married. It'll be illegal. And so they all rushed in and got married. Imagine the surprise uh, when they figured out they didn't have to get married. There are a lot of couples today that for no less reason than that will rush into matrimony. For whatever reason, whatever the uh, logic is, they will get married all of a sudden. Major reasons, there's three major reasons why relationships, particularly marriages, in the early stage don't go well. And that is because they're based on improper choices. You, you kind of umbrella that under all of it. Unrealistic expectations. And to me, a big one is a lack of preparation. To go into it with such a naivete about what a dream it's going to be, and to get there, and you haven't dealt with the foxes in the relationship. I had a lady call me one time and ask me if I'd perform a ceremony for her and her uh, husband-to-be. And I said, but when do you plan to get married? And she said, well, about a month. And I said, well, I'm probably not your man unless you want to move the date back, because I require six to eight weeks of premarital counseling before you get, if, if I'm going to be involved in the ceremony. She says, well... You know, we really already set the date. You know, can't you make an exception? I said, no. And so she says, well, let me talk to my fiancé and see what he says. Well, she did. She calls me back in a couple of weeks and she says, you know what? I want to thank you for not budging on your uh, the premarital counseling because she said, I, I talked to my fiancé about it and uh, he, he didn't like the idea of having any premarital counseling. What do I need premarital counseling for? And they got to talking about it. And she says, I saw a side of him I have never seen before. She says, well, I broke it off. We're not going to get married. So you can see the great benefit of even talking about having premarital counseling or preparation, not to mention the great benefit there is in even doing it. There was a lady named Gail Trent worked up at the county clerk's office. She uh, said that she was up there one day and got was giving out marriage licenses. And this couple came for a marriage license and she said that this man was whining about the fact that all the pastors required premarital counseling and he couldn't find anybody to marry them without any premarital counseling. And he made the statement, well, what do I need premarital counseling for? I've already been married five times. I mean, he knows the ropes, right? I had another guy call me one time and ask me if I'd marry them, and I told him my policy, and he said, he just blew up. He says, well, what's the church for then? 
What's it for if you guys don't do ceremonies? And I'll just kind of paraphrase my reply to him. But I said, sir, we are not in the business of performing ceremonies. We are in the business of building Christian marriages. And in my opinion, that takes preparation. The wisdom of Solomon and his fiancée here, I think, is a wonderful example. Because they are not without excitement, okay? You see him leaping and jumping. You see her going, look, he's coming. You've got all this excitement, but you've also got the level-headedness of focusing on what counts, that is, conversation, and focusing on dealing with these problems that might be there, of catching and eliminating, correcting the potential problems before they grow into be huge things. They took the advice of old Barney Fife. Remember what his advice was? Nip it in the bud was his advice, right? That's wise. Keep Get those foxes while they are little. It is so easy to be so excited about what you don't have. Be so excited about an upcoming wedding, uh, the ceremony. Or for a woman, a lot of times, it's the security of marriage. For a man, obviously, it's sexuality in marriage. And to be so excited about that which you don't have yet, that you brush under the rug all of the essential areas that you ought to be focusing on. And you get into marriage and you find out that security really wasn't that big a deal. That sex, yeah, great, but that ain't what it's all about. And then you get to looking at the person you married, asking, who are you? It's got to be focused on the essentials. But I want you to notice that even though she gently says, we need to deal with the issues in our relationship, that she also, in verse 16, affirms her commitment to one another. That even though we've got problems, that doesn't mean we're going to break up. It means we work through it. Look at verse 16. She says, My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. Let's stop there just a second. In Hebrew, you interpret poetry as this is with parallel lines. So she's saying the same thing. My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. Remember the first chapter? She asked the question, where are you going to graze? He says, I'm going to graze with you. And here she uses that very figure and talks about their relationship being a mutual commitment. He pastures his flock among the lilies. I am the lily of the valley. My beloved is mine, I am his. A mutual commitment in spite of problems. And then verse 17, she says, Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. Now, Hebrew poetry is probably the hardest in the Bible to interpret. And the Song of Solomon is probably the hardest of the poetical books to interpret. And in my opinion, in the Song of Solomon, this verse is the hardest one to interpret. I really struggled, no kidding, for months with this verse. And I'll tell you what I think it means. I wouldn't die for it, but I'll tell you what I think it means. She's saying, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, and until morning, that's, that's easy. But then she says, turn, 
My beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag. Where have we heard those words before? Back up when he's running to her, right? He is like a, a gazelle or a young stag on the hills and on the mountains, excited to get to her. Except she says, turn and get on the mountains of Bether, which you could translate as, uh, that is, of cleaving or of separation. And so I take it she is, again, wound up here. She's in the mood, as we've seen her before, talking about the hand being around. She desires to lay with Solomon. And I take it that she is saying, it's time for you to go. The same way you came, it's now time for you to go. It's time for you to turn until the morning and to be like a gazelle on the mountains that would separate us. Again, the desire to be pure. So I see her here trying to catch one of the most devastating foxes that can appear in a relationship. And that is the very relevant, common little fox of lust. You thought we were past this purity issue, didn't you? Nope. For the life of a single, it continues to be an issue, particularly when God makes it clear that this is the person you're going to marry, and you know this is the person you're going to marry. The devil gives you all kinds of justification to go ahead and do stuff that isn't proper yet to do, to, to arouse or awaken love before it's time. And so she wisely here tries to deal with this fox, and look how she does it. I love how she starts. She starts by affirming her commitment to him. My beloved is mine, I am his. We are mutually committed to one another, and, she says, I need you to leave, we are mutually committed to purity. Those are not mutually exclusive points. You can be committed to purity, and you can be committed to one another. It's not one or the other, it's both, prior to marriage. And if it's not both, that little fox can ruin your vineyard. She says, turn and go away. You saw this, uh, if you read in 1 Samuel, the life of King David, his biggest blunder, the sin with Bathsheba. You know how it started? You remember what time of day it was when that happened? In the evening, he got out of his bed. He was tired. He couldn't sleep. He got out of his bed, wandered on his roof. And being physically tired led him to making a weak moral decision. And I see the bride-to-be doing the same thing here, saying, I'm committed to you, please know that, but I need you to go. Now in chapter 3, Solomon has left, and the bride-to-be has a dream. Let's read it. She says, On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves, meaning she's dreaming. I sought him, but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares, I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me, and I said, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house into the room of her who conceived me. Now this dream that she's having is what a lot of psychologists call a fear fulfillment dream. That is, you, you desire something so much that you're afraid of losing it. And here we know that she is desiring her marriage. 
One reason we know is because that's the very next thing that happens. We'll see that next week. And another reason is because she sought him and couldn't find him. And then when she did find him, where did she take him? To mothers. I don't know if you remember, if you were with us a couple of years ago when we studied the book of Ruth. But remember, Ruth's mother-in-law uh, told Ruth and Orpah, the two widows, to go back to the homes of their mother. Not their father, but their mother. Because it was the mother who arranged weddings. And so I take it here that she's bringing, her, uh, she's bringing him to the house of the mother. That's her desire because she wants to marry him. And she won't let go until they're married. She is afraid of not marrying him. Love brings not only a great capacity for joy, but it also brings a greater capacity for pain. The best and the worst that you will ever feel in a human relationship, not with the Lord, but with a human relationship, is your marriage. As Billy Joel says, she brings out the best and the worst you can be. That's the way it is. A great principle here for those who are courting is that courtship should count the high cost of marriage. And so seldom is this done. You've heard the statement that two can live cheaper than one. Okay? That's only true if one eats and the other goes naked. This is a false statement. It, costs, it will cost more financially, and it definitely costs you more emotionally. The best chapter in the entire Bible for the single, exalting the virtue of being single and the gift of being single. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes this statement. And it's one that both the singles and the marrieds should never forget. He says, But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. He's talking to the single, and he says, If you marry, you have not sinned. But if you get married, I want you to know you're going to face many troubles. And I want you to know it. That is the plain, honest truth. A lot of times, women want to get married for the security. Men want to get married for the sex. And these are the wrong reasons to desire getting married. Because it is much better to be insecure than to be uh, insecure and single than to be married and insecure. It is much better to uh, be frustrated sexually as a single than to get married and be frustrated sexually. You count the cost of marriage. It's going to take everything you've got emotionally. It's going to take a lot of what you've got financially. The responsibilities increase. There is a high cost to marriage. It's worth it, but it's a higher cost than being single. And now she ends with verse 5, and this is where we'll end. She ends the same way she ended uh, last time, Last week, verse 5, the exact same wording. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Where else but the Bible, where else but the Scriptures, can you get such a healthy view of sexuality and a desire for it, and yet such a healthy view of morality on the same page from the lips of the same person? Desiring it and yet desiring it to be right more than she desires it to be fulfilled. 
A guy named Desmond Morris wrote a book called Intimate Behavior. And in this book, he lists several phases. Give me the next slide here, Al, please. The first phase here is called a no-touch phase. And this, these are universal. Culture doesn't matter. This is something that is transcultural, transgenerational. This is the way that a pair of people bond together, a natural process, in fact, a biblical process of how it's designed. First of all, eye to body. This isn't a sexual glance. It's just a noticing the person. And then eye to eye, and then voice to voice. It continues to, to get a little more intimate. And then you've got the next phase, which is non-sexual touching phases. The first three talk about side to side. Now you're a little bit more closer. You've got hand to hand, and then uh, arm to shoulder, and arm to waist. You can see the intimacy increases. Then you turn, and now you're front to front, or you're face to face, and hand to head. Again, still non-sexual touching, but the hand of the head is a pretty intimate uh, thing. You don't let a lot of people touch your head, do you? That's a very intimate thing to do that. I remember when Kathy and I were dating, she wouldn't cut my hair. She cuts hair and does a great job, but she wouldn't cut my hair. She cut everybody else's, but she wouldn't cut mine. I say, why not? She says, I'm not ready to touch your head. And I couldn't understand that. I thought that was silly. But now I understand. It's a much, it's a very intimate thing. Of course, not that intimate with scissors, but to her it was. Then you've got the final phase, which I've just summarized 9 through 12 as body to body. Now, he doesn't do that in his book. He tells what these steps are. And if you're interested in reading that, you can look at, look at it yourself. But the point being, there is a natural process and progression here that needs to go this way. And if you rush too quickly to the sexual touching phase, then you're going to screw up the natural way God has designed two people to bond. It's to go this way and in this order. And when that is done, it's called what you might call growing in love. Look at a good illustration of this. Think of it in the form of a triangle. Next slide, Al. Growing in love. The foundation of this triangle is a sacrificial love. And then it grows up from there. You've got a friendship love and then the passionate love. The sacrificial love is that what the New Testament calls the agape love. It's the selfless love. It's the love that you... you uh, it's a decision. It's an act of your will. It has nothing to do with your emotions. It's a choice that you make. I will love you. I choose to love you. Those, the love that you express in a marriage ceremony when you take vows. It has nothing to do with emotions. It is the choice. It is the will. And based off of that, anybody that loves you like that, and very few people will, mind you, you're going to develop from that a deep friendship or a love of liking to be with the person. And incidentally, if you've been married for years and you don't like who you're married to, start over with the sacrificial love. Instead of expecting to get, start giving, expecting nothing. And watch how the attitude of that person will change. It's rigged to work like this. If you do it like this, it will work. The sacrificial love is the foundation. From that is the friendship love or the love of enjoying one another's company. And from that comes the passionate love. Now, the problem with our culture today is we take that triangle and we flip it upside down and we start with passion, passionate love. And this, what you might call falling in love as opposed to growing in love. This is something that never stops. It continues to grow. It's founded on the love 
the Lord Jesus gives. But here, when you start your foundation with passion, and then from that you try to build a friendship and go up to the sacrificial love, it doesn't work. Any couple that is like this, I guarantee you, they will not last unless they stop and they start over and they start doing that. And by the way, that's very difficult to do. That once you have started that triangle upside down, I mean, it's going to flop over, there's no doubt, because it doesn't have a good foundation. But getting it to continue to turn and to totally back up and to start over is a very hard thing. It can be done, but it is a very hard thing. We need to have the solid foundation of focusing on what the Scripture tells us, not on sexuality, but as our text has focused today on those for whom the bell tolls, we're told that courtship should first focus on admiration and conversation, not just spending money and being entertained. It should identify and eliminate potential problems. Getting involved in some kind of a, a premarital counseling or something that can bring to the surface stuff that you don't think about. And it should also count the high cost of marriage. And all of this we're told we are to do before, verse 5, you arouse or awaken love. But notice the end of verse 5, it says, until she pleases. There will come a time, thank God, that though you've been pulling back the reins on that great sexual stallion, we're going to see the very next verse, until she pleases, acts as kind of like a hinge. But now we're going to see next week on the wedding day that they take those reins and cast them to the wind. And because it is now the proper time. I really want to encourage you, wherever you are, be it a single with no partner in sight, be it a couple courting, or be it a couple who have been married 10, 20, 30 plus years. The principles that the Scripture has revealed to us today are not just for young married couples. They are to continue, the courting relationship is to continue all throughout your relationship. Conversation, of dealing with the real stuff, problems, and continuing to count the high cost of marriage, that is, being willing to sacrifice for the other. Let's pray together. Our Lord, again today, we lock horns with the culture. But the culture that has that triangle turned upside down, and even though time after time we see the movie stars, we see the presidents, we see all these different people that we so admire that focus on the sexuality end of it first, that their relationship crumbles. And yet, Lord, we look at this great king and this young maiden that he is to marry and the example of their godliness and their character and focusing on these more essential issues. God, I pray for the marriages that are here today, for those that will be, who are represented here today. I pray for all of us that you might give us the strength to keep those reins in check and to so bond correctly and to enjoy that relationship, that sexual relationship, if it is your will to be married. Enjoy it as you desire it to be enjoyed. And we'll give you the glory for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>